today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. If we're never more like Christ than when we're humble, then so too we're never more like Satan than when we're proud. Think about that. It works both ways. Because Satan, (laughs) the very first sin was not on earth, was not in the garden. The very first sin was in heaven. When Satan, in his pride, exalted himself, said, I will become the Most High. I will exalt myself above the Most High. And his heart was filled with pride. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Nehemiah. God loves a humble heart. His son, Jesus, was the ultimate example of humility. As Christians, we are also told to be humble. In his message, Pastor J.D. discusses that when we allow pride in our lives, we become more like Satan. Because we find our identity in our Heavenly Father, we should also be driven to be more like Him, possessing a humble heart. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth in Nehemiah chapter 9. This is a great book, a great teaching and lesson about leadership, godly leadership and the person of Nehemiah, an amazing man, greatly used of God. He has just been used miraculously in the rebuilding of the wall and with it the gates surrounding the city and the newly restored temple. And it was in every sense of the word a miracle because they were able to do it in only 52 days. And they did so with just tremendous opposition and adversity and attack from their enemies, namely Sanballat and Tobiah. But God, in spite of it all, was able to get this great work done. And so now we pick it up here in chapter 9, and everything is done. Worship has been restored in the temple. There's been a great move of God, a great renewing of the hearts and minds on the part of the people of God. And now what we're about to see is a revival. (laughs) I mean, in every way, a revival on the part of God's people as they draw near to God, and he in turn draws near to them. And it's really quite a a profound account that is before us tonight. So let's jump in, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then, verse 2, those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners And they stood and, interesting, confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Let me just parenthetically and quickly say this in no way suggests that there is such a thing known as generational sins. The sins of the father are not to be confessed or paid for by the children. This is not, this is something we've talked about at great length 
in the past, especially when we were in Exodus. And uh, also, I think in, in uh, Deuteronomy, we revisited it. There is no such thing as generational curses. What are generational curses? Generational curses are this belief that the children of the fathers pay for the sins of the fathers, and nothing could be further from the truth. When Jesus died on the cross and completed the work on the cross, he said, it is finished. There is no longer any curse. Nothing has to be broken. The The children do not pay for the sins of the fathers, nor, by the way, do the fathers pay for the sins of the children. We all stand alone and give an account for ourselves. I don't mean to get off on that. I just wanted to make that clear because those who subscribe to this false teaching will grab onto verses like this and use it to argue their case that there is such a thing as generational curses that need to be broken, where we need to confess the sins or somehow pay for the sins of our fathers unto the second and third generation, and that is not true. In fact, if anything, it's God visiting the iniquities of the sins of the fathers unto the second and third generation. Why? To show mercy, to show kindness, to be compassionate and kind and loving. And by the way, that's what uh, we're going to see tonight. We get a, a great reminder of the nature of who God is. And God is long-suffering, and he's slow to anger, and he's kind, and he's gentle, and he's compassionate. And we're going to see that tonight with what the Israelites did in response to the goodness of God. God was so faithful and so gracious and so merciful to them, and yet they turned their backs on God, and they rebelled against God, and yet God was so kind to them and so gracious to them. Well, let's move on, verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for, get this, one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth <laughs> they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, correct me if my math is wrong, but if they did this for one-fourth of the day and then spent another fourth of the day worshiping the Lord. That would be half a day, right? Two-fourths equal one-half, right? So if there's 24 hours in a day, isn't that 12 hours? That's a pretty long first service. That's kind of like first and second service times like four with no potluck in between. And they did this and... I would imagine, I would suggest that time flew by, time was a non-issue. And they did this because this was an extraordinary display of their humility. One thing that I think, for lack of a better way of saying it, is that God finds our humility irresistible. Let me say the same thing in a different way. When we're humble, we are the most attractive to God. I'll take it a step further and say that we are never more like Christ than when we are humble, because Christ himself was humble. And we're told in the Proverbs and really throughout Scripture that he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. I'll flip this around on the other side and say this, that if we're never more like Christ than when we're humble, then so too we're never more like Satan than when we're proud. 
Think about that. It works both ways. Because Satan, <laughs> the very first sin was not on earth, was not in the garden. The very first sin was in heaven. When Satan, in his pride, exalted himself, said, I will become the most high. I will exalt myself above the most high. And his heart was filled with pride. And it led to his fall being cast out of heaven. We are never more like Satan than when we're proud. And we're never more like Jesus than when we're humble. So this is a beautiful and magnificent display of humility. And by the way, let me also add that isn't humility attractive and pride repulsive? By the way, this is why we always want the underdog to win, because they're humble, right? And we want the favorite, we want them to just get crushed and smashed, right? I think about those, the original Rocky movies. I think it was the first 18 of them. I don't know how many there were, right? But when, you know, Rocky Balboa, oh, thank you for this opportunity to be in the ring with the greatest boxer of all time, Apollo Creed. You know, he's so humble, so gracious, you know, so grateful. You're like, man, I love this guy. And here comes Apollo Creed. <laughs> you know, bouncing around and all the pomp and circumstance. And then here's this humble Rocky Balboa. We want Rocky to crush Apollo Creed, right? He's the underdog. Humility is attractive and pride is repulsive. And how much more is that the case before a humble and righteous God. I find it interesting that in posturing themselves before the Lord in such humility for such an elongated period of time that they would then stand and read from the book of the law. This is the word of God. Again, there's a renewed interest which always comes when there's revival. There's always a revival and a renewed interest in the Word of God. And to me, this speaks to how humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord will always lead to this deeper desire to get into the Word. And as we do, the Word in turn gets into us. Verse 4, then, we have some name pronunciations here. You'll bear with me. I'll do my best. Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Chenanani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherabiah, Hadijah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So here's what we have here. Beginning in verse 4, throughout to the end of the chapter, we have what some believe is the longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible. And what a glorious and grand and great prayer it is. And I'm really looking forward to kind of going through this and pointing a few things out that I think will bless you, I hope, as much as I was blessed. And just 
preparing to uh, teach this. But as we go through this, here's what's really going to stand out. You can sort of say this is the common denominator. If you took this entire prayer as grand and glorious as it is, and you were to put it into a container and pull out one thing from it, what what would you pull out? You would pull out the goodness of God in spite of God's people. And what I mean by that is that in spite of how disobedient God's people are, how wicked God's people are, it doesn't change how good God is. One of the things I'm learning in my walk with the Lord is that no matter how bad it is, and even no matter how bad I am and can be, it cannot change who God is and how good God is no matter what. Aren't you glad that the goodness of God is not predicated upon your goodness? Oh my goodness, who could stand? I mean, who could possibly stand? What kind of a relationship with the Lord would that be? If when I was good, God was good in return. If I wasn't good, then God wasn't good in return. That would be unthinkable. And what we're going to see here is, in spite of the disobedience on the part of the Israelites, God was still good in spite of how bad they were. This prayer, as we go through it, should be for every single one of us a great source of encouragement. And what I mean by that is it's a much-needed reminder of the grace of God and the mercy of God. Best defined this way, the grace of God is God giving us what we don't deserve, and the mercy of God is God not giving us what we do deserve. Think about that. I'll take both. (laughs) It's kind of like two wings on a plane. I was on a lot of planes the last couple weeks. I don't like being on planes that much, especially for those nine-hour flights to get back home from the East Coast, those straight flights. You know the kind where you just sit there and your feet swell up because of the lack of circulation, even with compression socks on. And those, I'm not kidding, I I really believe that the leg room in those airplanes now, I call me silly, but I think that they're less and less and less now. And so for guys like me that are six feet tall, by the way, online, the pulpit is high. It makes me look short. Everybody said to me, you're taller in person. So I think what we're going to do, Mac, is I'm going to saw off the bottom. I'll have Artie do it. We're going to saw off the bottom of this pulpit. So I don't look so short back here. So I'm a six foot tall person on an airplane sitting in those seats. My knees are up to my chin for nine hours. But anyway, I digress. Enough of my problems. (laughs) It's just great to be back. But (laughs) it's like two wings on an airplane. God's grace and God's mercy. And that's what makes us fly. (laughs) Without God's grace and without God's mercy, it ain't going to fly. Well, verse 6, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. This is what's known as 
adoration. I'll tell you, any prayer is lacking that is absent of just adoring God, in awe of God, as you worship God, and the magnificence of His glory. You know, sometimes our prayers are like grocery lists. Lord, I need this and this and this and this. I think we do err greatly when we don't begin our prayers with just a humble adoration and acknowledging of the goodness of God, who God is. And by the way, it kind of sets the temperature for the prayer because you're acknowledging who it is that you're praying to. You realize who this God is that you're praying to, what He is capable of. He created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. And I'm going to bring to Him my little puny need. Lord, I need help with the rent this month. Do you realize who it is that you're asking for the help from? This is the God who created everything that is. And you're asking him for that. And will he not do that for you? I love what the Apostle Paul says. If God is not going to spare his son, if he's going to give you his only begotten son because of his love for you, is there anything that he will withhold from you? I love what James says. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And there's no shifting of shadow. There's no variation. In other words, God doesn't change his mind. He's not back and forth. It's not like, okay, well, no, maybe not. No, maybe, yes, no, no. His gifts and callings are without repentance. If it's good, God's going to give it to you. If it's not good, you don't want God to give it to you. Aren't you glad for the prayers that you prayed that God didn't answer? Boy, had he answered the prayers that I prayed the way that I had asked him to answer them? I don't even want to go there. I think, you know, just, and the Lord knows. The Lord knows the end from the beginning, and he will withhold it because he knows. And now you don't want me to answer that prayer. Trust me, you don't want me to answer that prayer. And then sometimes it's years later down the road, you look back in retrospect, you go, thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. Oh, my goodness, had you answered that prayer? Oh, God is so good. But he continues now with the adoration, and it's almost as if they're reminding God of all that he had done. So it kind of turns a corner from this adoration of God to this proclamation of all that God had done. Verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, here's the ites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, and the termites that we have in our building, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, 
and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And verse 11, you divided the sea before them, speaking of the Red Sea so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep, speaking of the Egyptians, as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down, verse 13, also on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, speaking of the manna, this miraculous provision. Bread, manna from the sky, at the time they needed it, all that they needed, every day, daily manna, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. This is when Moses struck the rock. They're dying of thirst. They're dehydrated there in the desert during the exodus and the wanderings. And God has Moses strike the rock, and water comes gushing forth and satiates their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them, speaking of the promised land. So I think you would agree with me when I say this, but this is a remarkable accounting of all that God had done for the Israelites. And by the way, this is just a sampling of the many, many things that God did for them. I suppose you could say they're the highlights, some of the most magnificent and miraculous things that God did. Well, here's what I'm thinking. This is, I believe, one of the most important things that we can do in our lives as Christians, is to go back and recount and recall all the things that God did in our lives in the past. Because again, he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. How many times did the Lord part the Red Sea, metaphorically, figuratively speaking, in your life? You know, this church building that we're in, it was a parting of the Red Sea. As only God can, it was miraculous the way that God parted the Red Sea and enabled us to acquire and then subsequently renovate this beautiful church building. That was a parting of the Red Sea. That was a miracle. Thanks for tuning in to Pastor J.D.'s teaching in the book of Nehemiah today. Here at In Spirit and Truth, we strive to bring God's Word to you in a way that blesses your life, but also challenges you to make a difference in this world. Nehemiah was a man who made a great impact, even though he wasn't serving as a priest or spiritual guide of any kind. God still used him and still uses ordinary people today. If you'd like to listen again to today's message, you'll find it at inspiritandtruthradio.com. Just click on listen. 
Having access to messages from God's Word adds some great encouragement to the pauses in your day and helps to keep you focused on Him. We'd also like to tell you more about the Mideast Prophecy Update, where Pastor J.D. discusses current events and their prophetic importance each Friday and Saturday. Here to tell you more about this is Pastor J.D. Thanks, Josh. Followers of Jesus Christ have this anticipating of his soon return at the rapture of the church, especially with everything that's happening in the world today. I'm of the belief that we are seeing key Bible prophecies beginning to come to pass in real time. And it's for this reason that we do these weekly prophecy updates as we look up and lift up our heads, knowing our redemption draws ever so near. This is what Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 28. Our hope here at In Spirit and Truth is that believers will be ready and non-believers will get ready by coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while there's still time. Thanks, Pastor J.D. That's all we have for today, but join us again right here on In Spirit and Truth. Dude.